chapter, there are um, strange things that take place that um, probably you won't have to deal with, and I hope you will never have to deal with some of the things that come across my desk. And it's, it's just the nature of the job. I had one of those things happen to me about eight years ago. I was in my office, wasn't here at this location, it was downtown. And I got a phone call, and you know, they have the caller ID, and it was from Minnesota. So I picked it up, and there was this lady on the other end of the line I'd never met before in my life. She introduced herself to me, and then she proceeded to tell me that there was a guy in my church who was having an affair with a lady in the community, uh, and um, I needed to go and put an end to this relationship. And I was like, so how do you know that this guy is, in this married guy is involved with this other married woman? Well, because I have it on, on good information from someone that's really honest and wouldn't lie to me about this kind of thing, that that's what's going on. And I said, so have you seen with your own eyes bad behavior from this guy with this gal? No. Well, you know, um, so what you're telling me is, is that on the witness of somebody else, did they see him? Well, I'm not sure, but they know. So you've got it secondhand, so then I get it thirdhand. So that makes it, at best, gossip and at worst, slander. And now you want me to go with something that you've heard, but you've not seen, and confront a guy about something that may or may not be true. Well, it is true. You don't know that because you haven't seen it. Yes, I want you to do that. Sorry, not going to happen. Hung up the phone, and I'm thinking, there, I took care of that little problem. Three days later, I got a phone call from someone in this town who said, I have it on reliable information that this guy in your church, and they named the guy, is, who's married, is having an affair with a, a, another woman in, in town. And I said, so you have seen? I, don't, I didn't know this person. They just called me. I mean, I've never met him before. I knew them by name, but I'd never met him before. And, and they called me. And I said, so you've seen him with this woman doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing? Well, no. I have it on reliable information. I said, so... You have not seen the guy misbehaving. No, but I have it on reliable information. The Bible calls that gossip. And so um, I am not going to do anything. And so adios. The following week, I had someone actually sitting in my office saying, this guy from your church is being a bad man. And I just kind of went like, well, do you want to do, should we do something biblical about this? And of course, you know, when they're sitting right there and you throw out the Bible and say, do we do something biblical? They're like, yeah, let's get some stones and go stone him. <laughs> right? Because that's what we're going to do. And so I said, have you seen what's been going on? Well, no, but I have it on really reliable information. I'm going like, awesome, this is really great. So you know what the Bible says to do with that, don't you? Well, yeah, come to you, and you're supposed to take care of it. Nope, that's not what the Bible says. Uh, uh-uh. No, this is not junior high, and I'm not the principal, and so you don't come and tattle to me. So what the Bible says is that if you have a problem with somebody doing something that they shouldn't be doing, you, as an individual, by yourself, you go and see that person, and you talk to them face-to-face. And by the way, if it doesn't go well, that doesn't mean you quit or you give up. You try again, and you try again, and you try again until you've come to the end of it, and you go like, nothing's happening. So then you go, and you get two or three other people who can come alongside and be a witness, and then the the three or four of you go, and you talk to the individual. Now, there's a whole purpose behind this of going and talking to the individual who's in sin, and that's for them to repent and so that they can be restored back into fellowship. But if they refuse to repent then they can't be restored, and so then it goes to the next level, which then it comes to the leadership of the church, and the leadership of the church will have a conversation with you and with the individual, and we'll see where it goes from there. And then if he doesn't 
do that, then we'll do what Jesus says to do, and that's to love them from a distance. And they're looking at me, and they're going like, so you're telling me you're not going to go and talk to him? No, I am not going to go and talk to him. Because I didn't see anything. I don't know. It's secondhand information. It's gossip. And the worst thing is, is if you're wrong, then we've just created a bigger mess. And so we're not going to do that. So what we want to do is we want to follow through on what the Bible tells us to do. Here's where things kind of get messy. People don't understand that. They don't get the picture of what it is that God's calling us to do. So if you actually see somebody committing a sin, don't come and tell me. Don't come to the leadership team and say, hey, so-and-so was doing such-and-such, because I don't care. Kind of. I don't want to sound like I'm totally mean, but I'm just a little bit mean, because I'm going to say, if you saw it, you were responsible to go and deal with it. That's what God's calling you to do. There's a lot of that going on in the churches. It seems like there's a lot more unholy huddles going on where there is a little bit of talking about something that we think we saw that maybe we really didn't see. And we might be getting our exercise by jumping to conclusions rather than getting all the facts. And, you know, Jesus talked about that. He said that... that before we go and try and remove the speck of sawdust out of our brother or sister's eye, we need to take the log out of our own eye so that we can see clearly to help them out. In other words, we all have stuff in our life and we need to make sure about the stuff we have in our life that we've got it cleared up before we try and go and help somebody else. But you know, in John's letter, he wrote when he wrote to the church, he kind of talked a little bit about this and that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at verses 16 and 17 of the fifth chapter of the first letter of John. And here's what those verses say. They say, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give to him life, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now, before we get totally involved in this, I want to just point out the obvious. It's right at the beginning of this. The first thing that John says is, the person who sees his brother or sister committing sin. It's not what you've heard. It's not what you've, you're, you're thinking is going on. It's an actual eyewitness account of somebody who is stepping in and violating God's word in sin in some way or another, and you see it. When you see it, you're supposed to act on it, don't come running to the office to say, hey, or send me a text or somebody else, and you don't gossip about it. It's not what we're hearing. It's not anything else other than what we see. And when we see, we respond to that. Because guess what? Because you've seen it, you're now responsible for it. You can't unsee it. God knows you saw it. So you have to be responsible for the things that are there. And, and, and if we don't, here's the thing that happens. If we don't step up and do something or say something to the person that we see who is misbehaving, acting poorly, sinning against God, violating his word, if we don't say something when we see that, we've just stepped into disobedience ourselves. We are not following what the Word of God says we should do. We have, to, we have to trust God in what He is doing, particularly when it comes to this kind of a thing. Because I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit's already at work in that individual's life. And one of the reasons that, that their sin was found out in your your eyesight is you saw it is because God has you in mind for the ministry of reconciliation. We've all been made ambassadors of reconciliation by the blood of Jesus. 
We are to reconcile men and women to God. Even those who are believers in Christ, when they sin, we are to come alongside of them and help reconcile them to God. That's the job that that Jesus has given to us. And so when the Holy Spirit's at work, He's convicting of people of sin. And sometimes what He wants us to do is for us to come alongside of those people and give them a little nudge in a very loving and gentle way to remind them that what God is calling for them to do is to step into reconciliation, to to, uh, experience what I believe is one of the greatest gifts God has given to the church. The greatest gift that God, one of the greatest gifts that God has given to the church is the gift of repentance. The gift of repentance. And yet I think what happens is, is that it's a gift that the church doesn't want to embrace. Because you know what happens when the church starts to embrace repentance? It's an acknowledgement that I've got sin in my life. Hello, you're walking on planet Earth. Welcome to a sinful, fallen world. We've all got sin in our life. And we are called to repent. You know, the the amazing thing is, if you go and you take a look at, um, in in the church, church history books, at the great revivals of the world, all those great revivals started on two things. They started with people being on their knees in prayer, for their community, number one. And number two, after that prayer that they've started at, where they're on their knees praying and asking God to do something, God does something in the church first. He brings repentance to his church people. And when the community sees his people, the people of God, repenting of their sins, it moves them and the Holy Spirit uses that to bring them to a place of repenting of their sins and stepping into faith with Christ for the first time. That's how a revival breaks out. Maybe I should stop right there and say, come on, let's get up here. Let's repent. Let's see what God will do through our repentance. I have a sneaking suspicion that a number of people kind of go back for more coffee and then slip out the back door. And that might be me. You know, this passage that we're looking at today, though, it talks, John, John says, there's sins that do not lead to death. There are sins that lead to death. And then he also says God will give life. Uh, you know, typically when we read through a portion of the Bible, what we find when we read through that portion, for instance, if you go back to the beginning, and we're going to hit this verse up in a little bit, 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. That verse enlightens our hearts, our minds, our souls to the reality of what God wants to do for us and in us Through his son. He wants to relieve us of the burden and guilt of sin. So we confess it and and now it's all cleaned up. The slate is clean and we're ready to go. That's what verses do. They reveal and help us to understand what God has and wants for us. When you look at these two verses, it's not really clear what John is saying because it brings a little bit of confusion to our minds because all of a sudden we're looking at these two things because he's talking about sins that don't lead to death and sins that do lead to death. And we're wondering, does that mean that there are some sins that are worse than other sins? Are, are there, is, does God have a list of sins that are going to lead to death and there's there a list of sins that aren't going to lead to death? And by the way, which ones are the ones that are going to lead to death? Because I want to avoid those ones like the plague. I'll just go and sin in the normal sin that doesn't lead to death. That's where I'll spend my time in sin, right? Because we kind of want to know that stuff. We want to avoid the really bad stuff. Well, unfortunately, um, the key to all of this that John's talking about, he didn't reveal it to us in his writing. I think what happened is is that 
the churches or church that he was writing his letter to from the beginning as he mentions this whole thing about the two different sins, one that leads to death and the ones that don't lead to death and that there's, he, God's going to, you pray and God's going to give life to the one that doesn't lead. It's very confusing. And yet, as we look at it, we're not enlightened as to what he really meant. But I believe that the first church that he wrote this to, they all had a clear understanding of what John was talking about. Therefore, he didn't go into any detail on it or explain it at all because it was kind of like that thing where it's like, well, yeah, duh, no kidding, right? But we're all kind of going like, oh, I don't get it. So I'm going to share with you this morning four of the major views on these two verses. There's, there's more than four, but these are the major ones. And, and so we're going to walk through them and we're going to take a look at them briefly and talk about them. So here's what um, four of these views on what John means in these two verses. Number one, there are some who think that he is talking about some heinous sin like murder on when it comes to sin that leads to death. Now, let me help you understand this. In the Old Testament, there are about 28 sins that are punishable by death. It all depends. You know, somewhere between 16 and 28, you're going like, that's a big number. It all depends on how you look at them and how you break them up. If you get really um, down to the nitty-gritty, you can... You can weed out and make 28 different sins that are punishable by death. That should scare you just a little bit. Okay, for all you kids in here, let's just, let me just tell you one that you would get killed by. You'd be killed if you ever did this to your mom and dad. If you ever struck or hit your mom or your dad, they could drag you out of the house, down the street, and they would go and get the elders of the community. They'd drag you outside the city limits. They'd all bring stones with them. And they would stone you to death for hitting your parent. Anybody um, thinking that they're pretty smart and know everything? Going to tell mom death what to do? I don't know why I'm looking at you. Why do you look so guilty? All right, and here's the thing. Out of those 28 sins, there's a handful of those that still receive capital punishment in our country. Based off of the Bible, we have determined in our courts and our laws that these ones are punishable by death. Okay? So I'm just going to tell you right right off the get-go, I don't believe that view is likely what John is talking about here. So I kind of scratch that one off right away. The next one is apostasy. And apostasy is the deliberate abandonment of faith that one is pursuing or claiming. So if you're claiming to be a Christ follower and you've done all this stuff and then all of a sudden you go like, you know what? I've researched it. I've, I've given it three years of my life and I, I, Jesus is a really cool guy and he did some pretty amazing things, but he's not the way for me. Adios. Uh, I'm turning my back on all of this. That's called apostasy. Now, there are two um, variations here that, that really need to be brought into play. The first one is this. A person who was truly saved and commits apostasy with subsequent loss of salvation. That's the idea behind it. My take And from what I understand, and as I study the Word of God, is when you are the genuine, real deal, full article, Christ-following disciple, making disciple of Jesus, there's no way you can commit apostasy. It's not going to happen. You're not going to walk away from the faith because it has changed your life so dramatically that you're going like, there is no other way, and I would rather die than switch. And so, I don't believe a, a true, born-again, Christ follower, genuine Jesus lover will ever turn his back on Jesus. Um, the other one is, the second view is of a person who 
goes to church. They've been in church maybe for quite a while. They've picked up church language called churchinese, and so they know how to speak it really well to other people. You know, it's like, oh, bless your heart, brother. Bless your heart. Lord bless you really well. Oh, just bless your little soul. And then they'll say something like, amen, amen, or praise hallelujah, or hallelujah, or God is good. See, church and ease right there. They got it nailed down. And what happens is they can, they can speak this language in the church, and when they see other people who are Christ followers, they will express this church language to them because they believe that's the acceptable thing to do. The other thing is, is that they, they know where to find things in the Bible. So if you were to say, give me a verse that talks about God's salvation, first thing they would say is John 3.16. I got that one down, memorized. You know, and then they would have some other verses, and they would know where to find things in the Bible. So if you want to give somebody some encouragement, they would say, turn to Psalms and read Psalms. Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm. That's the most famous Psalm. Read that one. That's a really good one. Or if, they, if you wanted some advice on how to live life, they would direct you to Proverbs and tell you to start reading in Proverbs because that's really going to be good. And they'd be able to tell you about some of the miracles and some of the teachings that Jesus did. But the problem is, is that they've not fully bought into Jesus Christ being there. They know a lot about God. They know a lot about Jesus. But what they don't know is they don't know Jesus as their Savior. That's the hitching point right there. If you ask somebody, who is Jesus to you? And they come and they say, well, he's a really good guy. He's the Son of God. He's a prophet. He's a healer. He's a teacher. He's a miracle worker. He, he's magnificent. And they, they give you a long list. He's the Alpha and Omega, the Rose of Sharon. He is the gateway to glory, the, the pathway to perfection, the roadway to righteousness. If they say all those things and they leave out, he's my Savior, there's a good chance they don't really know who Jesus is. That's the thing that we have to come to grips with is that Jesus is my Savior. Matter of fact, um, one of the things that John talked about earlier in this gospel, and we talked about it months ago, it was found in John chapter 2. He talks about people that have left the faith. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. You see, they, they had spent time in the church. They had, they'd learned a whole bunch of stuff. But when it push came to shove, all of a sudden they left and they left everything behind. And they were not walking with Christ. They didn't know Jesus as their Savior. The first person that comes to my mind when I think about a person like that is Judas. After all, Judas, Judas spent three years walking with Jesus. He saw Jesus make the blind to see. He saw the crippled man get up who had been crippled his whole life, get up and walk. He saw the lepers that were healed. He saw Jesus feed the 5,000 men and then probably another 10,000 women and children on one occasion, and then the same thing about 14,000 on another occasion. He saw Jesus do those miracles. He heard the teachings that Jesus brought that astounded all the people that ever listened to him and said, here is one who speaks with truth and authority. And Judas was with him for three years. And at the end of three years, Judas walked away from the truth of who Jesus is, because guess what? Jesus was not Judas's Savior. He didn't know him here. He saw him, and he knew him here, but he didn't know him here. And you know, and that's the sad thing, is there are a lot of people walking around our community who are going to miss heaven by 14 inches. That's the distance from the brain to the heart. They have an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is, 
but they cannot articulate that Jesus is their Savior because that intellectual knowledge has never made the, the journey south into their heart where it becomes the reality of their life that Jesus is their Savior. So the, the, the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, he said this, and this is from the message. It says, if we give up and turn our backs on all we have learned, all we've been, uh, been given, all the truth we now know, we repudiate Christ's sacrifice and are left on our own to face the judgment. And a mighty fierce judgment it will be. If the penalty for breaking the law of Moses is physical death, what do you think will happen if you turn on God's Son, spit on the sacrifice that made you whole, and insulted His most gracious Spirit? This is not a light matter. God has warned us that He holds us to account and makes us pay. He is quite explicit. Vengeance is mine. I won't overlook a thing. And God will judge his people. Nobody's getting by with anything. Believe me. I'm telling you right now, if you don't know if Jesus is your Savior, you might want to rethink that this morning. If you can't say for certainty in your own heart, I know that Jesus is my Savior because this is when he saved me from my sins. Or I had a great sense that God was working in my life over this time frame. And at the end of it, I could articulate and say, He is my Lord and my Savior. God raised Him from the dead. And He has lived in my life. I mean, that's about as simple as it gets. But if you don't know that, Hebrews makes it pretty close, pretty clear that you're in pretty grave danger with your spirit. So my suggestion is, is that you... Take care of that. Get to that place where you can say that because Hebrews 10, 31 says this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't know if you remember the last time that God got a hold of you in a fearful way. But I'm going to tell you right now it brings torment to your soul until you deal with the thing that God is calling you to deal with. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He brings conviction into our lives. Um, the third, the third view about this, these verses about the, the sin that leads to death and the sin that does not lead to death that John's talking about the third view is this, that it's the unpardonable sin, also known as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just read you what Jesus said in Mark 3. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. You know, th this is one of those ones where if you're thinking, I mean, you will never be forgiven of that sin. I mean, if you commit that sin. And, I, and I'm 99.999% I'm confident that everybody that's sitting in this room right now has not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And the reason I, I can say that is because the, the whole idea behind blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and the unpardonable sin is the ultimate rejection of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the only sin you can commit that you will not be forgiven of. God cannot and will not forgive you of your sin. I think it is unlikely that John is talking about the unpardonable sin because he's talking, he, he, he says and talks about brothers. And, and when John talks about the brothers, he's talking about the brothers in Christ. That's what he's saying is he's saying, you know what, I'm talking about my brothers in Christ. And so they've made some kind of a move of walking in the newness of, of the gospel of Jesus Therefore, they have not committed the unpardonable sin. 
So that leaves us to the fourth view uh, of this sin committed. And it's a sin committed by a Christ follower that results in God's discipline by premature physical death. All right. And I think this is most likely the one. In the Bible, death can either mean one of two things when it talks about death. It's either talking about the physical death of a human being or it's talking about spiritual death. And if you have spiritual death, you end up in Riverton and spiritual life, you live up in Lander. So I don't think that John's talking about spiritual death here. I think he's actually talking about physical death. And because he's referring to believers, apparently John's talking about the possibility that there's a Christ follower who can sin in such a way that God may choose to take him prematurely out of this world physically by death. Relax a little bit. That's the exception to the rule, not the rule. So, uh, you know, unless you've got something that's going on that's, that's pretty bad that, that God's been poking you on that you're ignoring, you're okay. Now, the, the biblical example of this is Ananias and Sapphira found in the book of Acts chapter 5. Let me read what it says here. It says, Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Now the same thing happened exactly to his wife. Here's, here's the deal behind all of this. The church was growing, and they were having people come into Christ all the time. I mean, we're not talking about one or two people, you know, uh, a, a day. We're talking about hundreds of people coming to know Christ. And so what was going on in the church is they were taking some of their land that they had gathered up over the years, and they were selling it, and then they were bringing the money that they made off the the sale of their land, and they were laying it at the apostles' feet for the apostles to use to help the church. Nobody said you had to do it. Nobody said this is a requirement. It's not like you were, they were, this was something above and beyond their normal giving to the church. This is where they were going to get large amounts of money so that the church could have finances to do what they needed to do. And the problem with Ananias and Sapphira is they decided in their heart that this was a thing that God was calling them to do. And so they took and they sold a piece of property. Then they brought the money to the apostles and they kind of looked at each other and gave a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing and said, this is all the money that we got from the sale of our land. That was a lie. Because they held some back for themselves which was okay for them to do. They could hold it back. They could do with the money whatever they wanted to. They could hold it back, but what they should have said is, here is a portion of the money that we got from the sale of our land. We're giving it to them. We kept some for ourselves so that we can do some other things that we've wanted to do. And the apostles and and the Holy Spirit would have said, yeah, no, that's great, good job. But what they did is they lied to God in the Holy Spirit and they said, this is everything. They lied. And and these young guys picked up Ananias and they took him out and they buried him. And Sapphira came in. She didn't know what had happened to Ananias. And and Peter says, you hear those footsteps? Those men just buried your husband for the lie that you told to God that you and him contrived together. Your fate is the same as his. And before the men could actually get into the tent, down she went, she was dead. They came in and goes like, Pete, come on, like men. How many more? They picked her up, they took her out, buried her beside her husband. There's another place in Scripture where we find a reference to something like this as well. And that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we... we Before we get to that passage, 
on a Sunday when we do communion, we read the passage just before that where it talks about communion, proper serving of the Lord's Supper amongst the brothers and the sisters. And what was going on in the church at Corinth is that people were coming early and, and they were having this meal together and people that came early ate most of the food, if not all of it. Then they were getting drunk on the wine and it was causing a real problem. And God... He doesn't like that kind of stuff going on in his church. It's his church, by the way. And so, as Paul said to to them, this is why some of you are weak and some of you are sick. And some of you have even prematurely seen death. Some of them in here amongst you. is because this is the sin you're committing against the Holy Spirit. So, knock it off, is what Paul said. The... um, God brings discipline to people. And I want to tell you that in all of my years, my short years on this planet, I only know of one guy that, that this actually happened to. Is when I was in college, the church we were attending, one of the elders came into an elder meeting and he said, just want you all to know I'm leaving my wife I'm running off with my secretary. We're going to get our house together. I'm kicking my wife out of our house. We're going to live there together. I don't know what she's going to do. And listen, this is my decision, and nobody can change my mind. I'm going to do what I want to do. A couple of the elders looked at him and said, it is a fearful thing to be turned over to the hands of the living God, and if you do not change your mind, we're going to ask God to remove you from this earth. Because you are a stain on the fabric of the church. And he says, do whatever you want. I'm going to do what I want to do. One week later, as he was walking out of the church, he dropped over dead on the steps of the church from a heart attack. Do you think that God doesn't take this stuff serious? He does. Now, like I said, It's the exception. Don't worry. I'm not praying that way for anybody yet. (laughs) So, what, what we have to take away from this is that John's not wanting us to focus on any specific sin. Like I said before, we don't need to know which ones we're to avoid so we don't end up dead. Because guess what? We should avoid all sin. That's that's what it says at the bottom there of of those verses is that (laughs) all wrongdoing is sin. So let's just avoid it altogether. But the truth is, is that we're going to have thoughts that are sinful. We're going to have actions that are sinful. We're going to throw out words that are hurtful and harmful and sinful. We're going to do things that are not according to what God's Word says. And by the way, um, you know, God covers all of this stuff because it's not a list of sins that He's giving us that He says to avoid. He says this. This is how far it goes. He says, if you know to do the right thing and you don't do the right thing, to you, that is sin. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's telling a lie or stealing. It doesn't mean that you're gossiping. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. It means when you're walking through life and doing life as God has called you to do it, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God says, I want you to go and do something for that person right there, and you go, that would be a good thing to do, but I'm late. I don't have time to do that. And so you move on beyond that. You don't do the right thing right then. God says that's sin. Why is it sin? Because you disobeyed the Spirit of God. Listen, I want want us to get this. This is the thing that that I really want us to do, is that we're not to focus on the specific sins that lead to death, but rather we are to take a look around. Because in these verses that we're studying, it talks about praying for the people. 
That's really what John's talking about because the verses prior to this, he's talking about that we know that when we bring our requests to God, He hears them and He answers them. The answer is already on the way whether we've received it or not. And so what He's calling us to do is to pray for those people in our church. We all need to be praying for one another. You need to be praying for me. I need to be praying for you. We're to pray and be intercessors for Christ's followers so that when they do sin, they will be sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. They will repent of their sin and they will be restored back into fellowship with God. That's what John's talking about here. That's what he wants us to do. And we have perfect opportunity for you to pray for this church and for the people of this church. We need to pray for people in this church because we have people who are sick. We have people who have financial needs. We have people who are, are wondering about what's the next step in life for them. We have all kinds of things going on in this church. We want to be disciples who are making disciples. We need people to pray for that. And so we have set up in this rural, right back there at the back where it says gather, that's where we meet on Wednesdays for the river where we come. And, and a few of us are praying just about every Wednesday. Just about every Wednesday, there's a few of us gathering for prayer. If you want to be a part of that, come and join us on Wednesday at noon. If, if you can only come for 10 or 15 minutes, we're okay with that. And by the way, if Wednesday doesn't work for you and you're going like, you know what? I think Tuesday would work better for me. You let me know. We'll make it available. If, you know what would be really great is if every day of the week at noon, there were people gathered back there and they were praying for this church and they were praying for this community. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't you like to be a part of a church like that? See you in 45 minutes. When it comes to sin, I want you to know this about God. God's in the business of forgiving sin. Think about that. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Because he's the only one that could pay the debt for our sin, pay the price so that we would know the forgiveness of sin, so that we would know what it's like to walk with a clear and clean conscience before God. That's why I, I, I alluded to this verse earlier, First John 1, but I'm including 8 through 10. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. God wants to forgive you of your sin. Why would you hold on to it? Why would you not confess it? Why would you not make those things right with God? Why would you let those things overrule your life and rob you of the peace, the joy, and the happiness that God has for you, and, and you can live a life that isn't riddled with shame. Seek His forgiveness. Not only are we called to repentance individually, but we are also called to help those who need someone to come alongside of them. As Paul wrote in Galatians 6.1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, get this, in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here's the point that Paul's making about this is that there are sometimes people who get caught up in sin who need someone to come alongside of them and lift them up in a gentle way and say, listen, you can do better than this. I'm here to help you do better than this. God is going to forgive you of your sin, but you need someone to come alongside of you. The greatest sin I think that the church owns right now is that we refuse to bear one another's burdens. And the reason we don't bear one another's burdens is because we hold our cards close to our vest and we don't want anybody to know what our burden is. We're embarrassed by our burden. And yet God knows all about it. And God is just calling out to you. He nudges you and he says, you need to talk to somebody about this. You need to find someone who's going to pray with you about this. You need to find someone who's going to hold you accountable in a gentle way about this very issue in your life. 
bear your burden so that someone can carry it with you, so that we know how to pray for you. We can't pray for you. I can't pray for you. Your friends can't pray for you. If you're not going to take and let your burden be known to those who love you the most, we're called to restore in the spirit of gentleness. There's a warning that is attached here. It says, keep a watch on yourself so that you're not tempted to fall into the sin that the person's confessing to you. Do you know how many times that has happened? People who have not been aware of what their surroundings are and what they're going into. Because remember, the enemy of your soul wants to rob, kill, and destroy anything good that God's going to do in your life. And so what he's going to do is he's going to pour on the heat when you go and you're talking to somebody. And that temptation is going to come at you if you are not ready for it. You will fall to it. And then somebody else is going to have to come and restore the both of you. We want to bear each other's burdens because when we do, as people start to, to have their burdens carried with somebody else helping you, not them being the sole person that, that is in charge of your burden, you're in charge of it. We bring it to Christ. In Romans 8, it says this, Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is absolutely nothing that will separate you from the love of God. Even if you are involved in a sin where God says, I've called on you to repent of that sin more times than than I should have. And he takes you out of this world prematurely. You will still find yourself in the presence of a loving God. We're going to move right to Samuel 12. Because this is what Samuel said. He said, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all of your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. Do you see the sin that Samuel wants to avoid? He wants to avoid the sin of not praying for those around him. Did you ever think about that that way? That when... God lays somebody on your heart and you're supposed to pray for him and you don't pray for him, you've just stepped into sin. That's what Samuel wants to avoid that sin of a prayerless life. And he wants to step into being able to pray for other people. God, listen, don't make a promise to somebody that you're going to pray for them every day. You're going to fail at that. Don't do it. But do this. If you're going to pray for somebody and you want them to know you're going to pray for them, you say it this way. As God lays you on my heart, I will pray for you. And then you leave it to God. When that person needs prayer, he's going to bring their name to your life, and at that moment, you're going to pray for them. Prayer is an important thing, as we find in in James chapter 5. It says, The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins... He will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. How do you know if you're a righteous person? Because you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have His righteousness. And so when you pray... God is going to use your prayers. You intercede for other people on their behalf. He will use your prayer in its working because you're walking with Christ. And then he says this. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You see, once again, we are responsible for one another. Once again, God's calling us to reach out to those people who are wandering away from the truth of God, who have decided to go their own way and and be like a sheep 
and, and follow their own heart rather than trusting and listening to God. And God is calling those people. He is saying to us, go get them and bring them back. Because when you do, you, you save their soul from death. Now their soul is not their spirit. Everybody is spiritually dead till they come to faith in Christ in their spiritual life. So this is not, again, it's, you're not saving them from eternal death, but from a physical death right at the moment. People do stupid things all the time. And God says there isn't a pill for stupid. But I have people who go help stupid. And so, are you going to be a vessel used by God for the body of Christ? That's what he's calling us to do. We're, we're not called to rub people's faces in their sin. What we are called to do is to be the catalyst that God uses to bring people back into restoration with him. We want to avoid sin. We especially want to avoid those sins that lead to death. And I don't even know what they are. But I know I want to avoid them. So I'm going to avoid sin on, on a whole as best I can with the power of the Holy Spirit. And when I do sin... I am going to confess it quickly to God so that I will be restored in my relationship with Him. That's what the heart of God is about, repentance and forgiveness. Amen? Amen. Our Father, we thank You that You have been so gracious to us, that You have loved us deeply, that You have called us sons and daughters, that You have given us the right to be a child of God, and that You have provided for us practical application on how not only we avoid sin, but we help our brothers and sisters in Christ to walk in the newness of Christ. And as they fall, we come alongside of them. We help them up, we dust them off, and we give them hope for tomorrow, that tomorrow will be better than today. God, place in our hearts a desire, a longing to be the people who come alongside and are responsible for one another. Help us to know what it means to share our burdens with one another so that people can help carry them. And so we just want to commit all this to you today, God. We ask for your blessing upon our lives. We pray that you'd give us eyes to see and then give us a heart to respond. We ask for your power to enact that in our lives, Jesus. In your great name we pray, amen.